0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Vinyl Countdown, the podcast where I, Jeremy Levine, break down my favorite vinyl releases from cover to cover and everything in between. On this week's episode, uh, once again, welcome back everybody. Uh, This is an album that I've been putting off for months and months and months and I've finally decided to dive into it. Uh, It's such a heavy record with so many... Uh, depressing themes. Uh, It's really hard to talk about sometimes, or even to listen to, but hey, here we are, right? Um, The Mountain Goats, The Sunset Tree, from 2005. Now, before we get into the band and the music, let's get on down to Variant Corner. And it's a quick one this week, because there's only one pressing, released in 2008 on black vinyl. Uh, Not much to discuss there uh it sounds great um there's no extras. there's no like any kind of anything it's just a record and um uh, it's pretty good though it's it's uh, i say pretty good it's very good um so the mountain goats are an american band formed in claremont california by singer songwriter john Darnielle. uh the band is currently based in durham north carolina for many years the sole member of the mountain goats was Darnielle, despite the plural moniker uh, although he remains the core member of the band, he has worked with a variety of collaborators over time, uh, including bassist and vocalist Peter Hughes, drummer John Worster, multi-instrumentalist Matt Douglas, singer-songwriter Franklin Bruno, bassist and vocalist Rachel Ware, singer-songwriter slash producer John Vanderslice, guitarist Kaki, Kaki King, and multi-instrumentalist Annie Clark. Now, before I go any further, I don't know who a single one of those people are. Uh, it was in the Wikipedia article, so, you know, I just wanted to name them in case anybody out there knows who they are, so that's really cool that he worked with all these people, but, um, the band's name is a reference to the Screaming Jay Hawkins song, Yellow Coat. Uh, Darnielle released his first recording as the Mountain Goats, uh, Taboo 6, The Homecoming, on Trimper Records in 1991. That's one thing about this band that, I guess I didn't realize until I really started diving into them, they've been around for a long-ass time, like, a long time, so, I mean, you look at this, the record that I'm talking about today is what 14 years after they started, and that's like I don't even know what I don't even know what album it is. It's like their fifth or sixth album, uh, so they they're pretty far into it by the time I, I, you know, we get to this point, you know. But uh, it says that many of his first recordings and performances featured him uh, accompanied by members of the all-girl reggae band, the Casual Girls, who became known as the Bright Mountain Choir. Uh, One of this group's members, Rachel Ware, continued to accompany Darnielle on bass, uh, both live and in studio, until 1995. In 2004, The Mountain Goats uh, released We Shall All Be Healed. Uh, The album marked a number of changes for The Mountain Goats, as it was the first time that Darnell worked with producer John Vanderslice, and uh, the first album of directly autobiographical material. We Shall All Be Heard chronicles Darnielle's life uh, with a group of friends and acquaintances addicted to methamphetamine in Portland, Oregon. Uh, though the album is set in uh, Pomona, California. The following year, the band's second Vanderslice-produced album, The Sunset Tree, was released. Uh, Again, autobiographical, he tackles the subject of his early childhood spent with an abusive stepfather. Uh, He had previously dealt with the subject in what he often refers to as the only autobiographical song he had written before 2004, the unreleased song You're in Maya. Uh, In the album's liner notes for this record, he uh, writes... Made possible by my stepfather Mike Noonan, nineteen forty to nineteen to two thousand and four. May the peace which eluded you in life be yours now. Dedicated to any young men and women anywhere who live with people who abuse them with the following good news. Uh, you're going to make it out there alive. You will live to tell your story. Never lose hope. So as you can tell, this is gonna be a fun episode. <laughs> fun episode. Really lighthearted, you know. So many of the lyrics, you know, refer to his Abuse Riddle, Childhood, uh, especially the songs This Year, Dance Music, Hast Thou Considered the Tetrapod. The tone of this album is very somber, right? It's uh, dealing with his longing for escape and uh, feelings of powerlessness, um, like in the song Lion's Teeth, which uh, he describes as a revenge fantasy. Uh, So, I mean, there's there's a lot, right? And the album concludes, of course, with uh, the two final songs. Uh, Love, Love, Love is one of them, in which... Uh, He notes the virtue and folly of doing things uh, for reasons of love and pale green things, uh, in which he recalls the time his stepfather took him out to watch horses at a racetrack. He closes the song in the album with the lyric about his sister calling him to inform him of his stepfather's death. So let's get into it. Track one, You or Your Memory. Uh, Starting off on a super dark note, the song is implied to be about the narrator contemplating uh, trigger warning, content warning here. I guess I can probably say that for the entire episode, uh, suicide, though, the choice of baby aspirin and Bartles and James that he talks about in the song, uh, would kind of give you the, the idea that maybe his heart actually isn't in it. Cause I don't think that'd be enough to kill him, but maybe it's more of just a, I don't know, like a cry for help. Oof, you know, um, he says in the song, you know, I, I ducked behind the drapes when I saw the moon begin to rise. Gathered in my loose ends, switched off the light, and down there in the dark I could see the real truth about me. As clear as day, Lord, if I make it through tonight, then I will mend my ways and walk the straight path to the end of my days. Uh, Verse 2 definitely lends itself to that explanation as well. Like, he doesn't... Like, uh, again, uh, trigger content warning here, just about suicide in general or suicidal thoughts. There's a big difference between being suicidal, I guess, and actually wanting to kill yourself, right? Like that's um, that's a whole other discussion for another podcast. But just that's what I kind of think he's in this song. He's in that kind of like I don't know, like you feel like you want to die, but you don't actually want to go through with it. But it's, it's in, in that weird, the very depressing in between, right? Uh, it's a great opener that does an excellent job of setting the tone of the album. Uh, next up is Broom People and it is one of my favorites. So a yeah, young John narrates the song uh, describing, you know, the cluttered, dysfunctional house he grew up in. Uh, he addresses the, the song to his girlfriend at the time, who, unlike everyone else in his life, knew about his situation and was there to help him through it. And he sings, "Um, friends you don't have a clue, uh, well-meaning teachers, but down in your arms, in your arms, I am a wild creature. And, you know, the those lines kind of speak to that, you know, because it's kind of like him and her, like, like again, like, she knows kind of what's going on and nobody else does, right? Uh, in verse 2, there's a line that always, always sticks with me, where he says, um, I write down good reasons to freeze to death in my spiral ring notebook, but in the, in the long tresses of your hair, I'm a babbling brook. Yeah, first of all, fuck, right? Uh, secondly, it seems like here, you know, John finally feels safe maybe, and is able to disclose, uh, the abuses he's going through to his partner. Uh, he's a quote, you know, babbling brook, both in that he can't stop talking about things he's kept bottled up and that maybe he feels natural and at ease. So, you know, again, a lot to unpack there, right? Uh, next up this year is a little bit lighter of a song, uh, it's basically a song about how things will be better next year once he's out of his parents house and away from his abusive stepfather uh an interesting anecdote about the chorus i found is that this year was actually a placeholder chorus like because in the chorus he just says um i am gonna make it through this year if it kills me boom boom doo anyway um so he says that um that you know, he was like, okay, th- this is where I'll put the chorus, and it will have an A B A B rhyme scheme, and uh, yeah, I guess one of his producers were like, uh, having with it, somebody named Peter, uh, said like, no, you're done. There's all there is to that. Uh, he wasn't forceful about it uh, because he knows that if you tell me what to do lyrically, I will go, no, I'm the guy who writes the lyrics. But he was like, I, I remember him being, you know, saying like, it's it's fine the way it is, and uh, you know, because I was gonna make it rhyme. But actually, would the song be anywhere near as effective without the fact that it's just one line that everyone can remember? So that's from John himself, you know? So that's, um, yeah. So throughout the song, he's basically rebelling and doing a bunch of crazy shit. And when he finally comes home, he knows that his stepfather's waiting for him and will probably beat the shit out of him because of it. So not as light as I said it would be, but still a little lighter than the other <laughs> songs that preceded. it. Um, it's a wonderful song though, to put on like around like New Year's or so. And, um... It's one that I sung a lot, I listened to a lot during 2016, thanks to all of the, like, wild shit 2016 brought. Um, but moving right along, track four, Dilaudid. Um, This track's instrumentals are made up of a looping cello riff, which sounds fucking cool as shit. Uh, before a 2006 performance of the song, he Darnielle said of, said of the song, uh, you shouldn't mix pills that they tell you not to mix if you're 16 and think you're tough. Um... The title refers to the opioid uh, opioid uh, painkiller of the same name, of course. And uh, he actually became a heroin addict when he was 17. So there you go. Uh, the song is short and sweet. And uh, not sweet, but it's just um, kind of straight to the point, right? Track five, dance music. This song. Ooh, boy. So, he's, uh, so he's, he starts off by singing. He says, all right, I'm on Johnson Avenue in San Luis Obispo, and I'm five years old or six maybe. An indication is that there's something wrong with our new house. Trip down the wire twice daily. Uh, I'm in the living room watching the Watergate hearings while my stepfather yells at my mother. Launches a glass across the room. Straight at her head and I dash up stairs to take cover. Leaning close to my little record player on the floor. So this is what the volume knob's for. I listen to dance music. Do, 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 boop. Dance music. That's the, you know, that's how the chorus isn't. It continues going with, um... Okay, so look, I'm 17 years old. you're the last best thing I've got going. But then the special secret sickness starts to eat through you. What am I supposed to do? No way of knowing. So I follow you down your twisting alleyways. Find a few cul-de-sacs of my own. There's only one one place this road ever ends up. And I don't want to die alone. Let me down, let me down, let me down. Gently. And yeah. Before the police come to get me, I'm listening to dance. Music. Right. That's, um... So, again, he's detailing his horrible upbringing here, uh, but then goes into his heroin addiction. In a a September 2015 interview, he specified that he and his girlfriend at the time were were both using. So, you know, not great. And um, I always thought that that, that the special secret sickness line was about cancer, but um, it is not. So it went from, like, bad to to bad, (laughs) I guess. Um, I mean, the songs kind of speak for themselves. Uh, It's hard to dive Super deep into them, I guess, because I can't relate to abuse or drug addiction or anything, right? Like that's not anything that I grew up with or really ever saw. Even with my friends, if some of my friends were doing things like that or did have that, like I was sort of separated from it, I guess. Like I wasn't ever really into, you know, I guess not super in tune to what was going on, maybe with with people if that if that were the case, you know. But um, I will say, I mean, just the way that he paints a scene and tells a story is incredible. It really just conjures up a bunch of feelings, like, I guess, empathy, and you can sympathize with them, and you can really, for better or worse, like, visualize what it would be like, I guess, to grow up in something like that, right? Like, it's... It's... I'm not gonna say soul-crushing. It's just heartbreaking sometimes, you know? But uh, up next at track six is uh, Dino Lupati's Bones. Uh, He is described... Uh, John has described that song as a uh, love song for an old friend, a girlfriend with whom he spent a turbulent summer doing hard drugs with, which is probably the same girl from the previous song. Uh, I love the part where he sings, uh, We kept our friends at bay all summer long we Treated the days as though they'd kill us if they could Ringing out the hours like blood-drenched bedsheets To keep winter time at bay But December showed up anyway there was no money, it was money that you wanted. I went downtown, sold off most of what I owned, and we raised a tower to broadcast all our dark dreams from Dino Lepani's bones. <sighs> so, <clears throat> those lines and the ending would definitely suggest a summer of drug use and you know, the idea of selling off things uh, to get money, uh, withdrawing from friends, family, etc. etc. Uh, although, Really cool. Uh, I read about the the demo of this song, and the ending is actually more bleak somehow. Uh, So he sings, There was no money, it was money that you wanted. Then the paint peeled, and the rotten rafters groaned, and we watched cracks form in the house we'd made, out of Dina Lopati's bones. (sighs) Christ almighty. So, I think, uh, lyrically, I like the original ending more, actually. And, uh, and after listening to the demo, too, it's hard to say that I like it better than the album version, but it is... It's not as hushed. Like, he he isn't singing as hushed as he is on the record. He sounds almost more... Like, he's more distressed. Like, his voice sounds kind of desperate. I don't know, man. Like, the guitar is... just more aggressive, like, tonally. Like, it's just a... It's a completely different experience, I feel like, the demo to the album version. And they're both great in their own right, but... I don't know, man, it's it's hard to pick against the original kind of vision of that song, you know. It is pretty incredible. I I highly recommend, if you're any sort of a fan of theirs, to look that particular uh, demo up. But uh, track seven, Up the Wolves, is up next, and it's actually the first song I ever heard of them, uh, thanks to season four, episode 12 of The Walking Dead. Uh, This also lets me pinpoint the exact day and approximate time that I would have heard the song. Which would have been March 2nd, 2014, at approximately 8:55 p.m., or maybe 9:55. I think 9 because, um, yeah, 9:55. The uh, The Walking Dead airs here. It was from 9 to 10, and this played in like the last like five or six minutes of the episode. So anyway, this song has one of my favorite things in it, which, as you all know, uh, besides a well-timed woo, they have a well-timed oh. I just, I don't know why I love little vocalizations like that. Like, it can just, like, make or break a song. Like, I mean, I I think I had this conversation on on Facebook in a group one time where it was like, there are some times that a song really isn't that good, but if it builds up and there's a certain, like, part like that that can really kind of bring you in, like, I'll sit through a shitty, or, you know, a not-so-great two-and-a-half minutes of a song if I know that it's building up to a part I really, really like. So, here's what... Uh, Mr. Darnielle had to say about the song. He says, uh, quote, I'm always trying to figure out what to say about this goddamn song. Uh, Part of me wants to say, uh, look, it's about revenge. But as soon as I say that, I say, no, that's not quite it. Part of me wants to say it's about the satisfaction of not needing revenge. And I say, no, that's not new age stuff. No, that's some new age stuff. Uh, I think it's a song about the moment in your quest for revenge when you learn to embrace the futility of it. The moment when you know that the thing you want is ridiculous and pompous and a terrible thing to want anyway. Uh, The direction in which you're headed is not the direction in which you want to go, yet you're going to head that way a while longer anyway because that's just the kind of person you are. Uh, I'm really glad I found that explanation because the song itself is very abstract, it seems, when compared to the rest of the album. You know, the rest of the album is pretty straightforward in its approach to really horrible shit. But this song, you know, in the chorus he sings, um, Our mother has been absent ever since we founded Rome. But there's gonna be a party when the wolf comes home, uh, which is an allusion to Romulus and Remus of Roman mythology. Uh, They are, according to Roman folklore, the founders of the city of Rome. Uh, They were orphans raised together by a she-wolf who acted as their mother. When they got older, um, the wolf left them. Uh, They got into a disagreement over where to build the city, and Romulus killed his brother Remus. Uh, on another level, the wolf is Darnell's abusive uh, abusive stepfather. Uh, he's often referred to as an animal on this album, uh, magpie, a lion, a wolf, uh, to build on how unpredictable he was. Uh, John has also commented on the feeling of betrayal at his mother's inability to protect him and his sister. Uh, in this way, she had been, quote, absent, but things will get better when she, quote, unquote, comes home. Oof. So, the ending of the song, where you can hear his voice getting more and more uh distressed as he sings, uh, I'm gonna bribe the officials. I'm gonna kill all the judges. It's gonna take you people years to recover from all of the damage. Our mother has been absent ever since we founded Rome. But there's gonna be a party when the wolf comes home do 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 Oh and like it just it's so fucking cool, man. Like um it really just it just kinda ends the track really, really nicely, right? Then um, Lion's Teeth is up next at track eight and kind of serves as the dramatic centerpiece of the album. Uh, He, again, described this as a revenge fantasy. Uh, It depicts depicts a night at the peak of his childhood abuse where he dreams of standing up to his stepfather. uh, Talks about finding his father asleep in the car and tries to suffocate him but fails and only wakes him up to piss him off even more. Uh, he also makes mention of the rest of the house, saying that uh, nobody in this house wants to own up to the truth, suggesting that they either know about it or don't and don't care, or more likely, uh, they're also getting abused and are scared to say anything or to try and stop it. It's fucking sad and unfortunately a fairly common situation, right? And he paints it in such a way, it's just absolutely devastating. Next up, Has Thou Considered the Tetrapod? Uh, this is one of those songs that he says, when I tell people what it's about, they look really uncomfortable. And they don't laugh at the parts that I think are funny when I tell the story. Uh, here, I'll show you. Uh, so this is one of those songs about when you're how if you're 13 and you live in a house where your stepfather beats your mother nightly. See, I told you some of us from these houses we laugh and we remember the things. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, if I figure out why, I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> if I figure out why I'm gonna write a self-help book about it. But in the meantime, this is a song about the headphones that were most important to me when I was 14. So that is from a, a 2009 concert. So he says uh, in the song when well, he's talking about like trying to i guess suffocate him in his sleep. He says um uh, but I do wake you up and when I do you blaze down the hall and you scream. I'm I'm in my room with the headphones on, deep in the dream chamber. And then I'm awake and I'm guarding my face hoping you don't break my stereo because it's the one thing that I couldn't live without. And so I think about that and then I sort of black out, held under these smothering waves by your strong and thick-veined hand. But one of these days, I'm going to wriggle up on dry land. He sings, you know. I, I guess in a way, I can sort of relate to that. Uh, and I, I may or may not have mentioned this on the show before, but you know, up until I was like eight years old, my dad was a pretty heavy drinker, and there were times when he would go to sleep, like fall asleep with his jeans on or whatever, and uh, he had he always had like a little clip with his keys attached to his belt or to his belt loop or whatever. And if he, you know, you try like hell not to wake him up because if you woke him up, it was, um, usually wasn't too pleasant. And, um, I I mean, I'm pretty sure I've gotten spanking. Like I never got like, like he never like beat us up to the point of like, you know, like abuse or anything like that. Me and my brother, but you know, we got whippings with belts and shit like that. You know what I'm saying? Like it was just kind of, I guess a product of, product of the time unfortunately but I can remember the like the the horror of hearing those keys jingling up the hall knowing that we woke him up and it's like fuck you know it, it's objectively terrifying but looking back you know now me and my brother talk about it or me and my sister too you know we'll talk about that sometimes if it comes up and it's like hey, I remember when dad used to oh man he's coming down the hall you hear those keys jingling oh man you knew when he was coming <laughs> and it's like I guess I can understand how he, like, again, an objectively horrible thing, you know, how he can laugh about it, and it's not that I think it's funny, I guess, but maybe that's just the way that I've learned to deal with it over the years, um, and I mean, I guess there are other things too related to the to the the drinking, some of the very angry outbursts and things of that nature. But anyway, that's this is uh is up next, um, so I'm going to go down some weird. A lot of fun magpie information here. They are members of the Corvidae family, uh, closely related to ravens, crows, and jays, and they are quite intelligent. They are, uh, Corvids are associated with uh, a number of different superstitions and myths. So uh, One for Sorrow, a traditional children's rhyme, states that your fortune depends on how many magpies you see. 1 for sorrow, 2 for joy, 3 for a girl, 4 for a boy, 5 for silver, 6 for gold, 7 for a secret never to be told, 8 for a wish, 9 for a kiss, 10 for a bird you must not miss. Now, throughout the song, he John continually refers to the magpie, suggesting it is singular and thus brings sorrow. Now, that is according to song genius, not John himself, so take that with a huge grain of salt, but it sounded good to me. Again, song uh, again seems to be about uh, you guessed it child abuse. it's it is exhausting in a way <laughs> to talk about this record and, uh, this is why I pushed it off for so long because it's such a heavy fucking record and nothing, nothing about it is happy. So up next is song for Dennis Brown he is seemingly comparing his eventual death to that of Dennis Brown, a reggae and dance hall singer who died in July of 1999. So in the song he sings, uh, (laughs) on the day that Dennis Brown's habits caught up with him, school children sang in choirs, suggesting that when he died, nothing changed, you know, uh, daily life just went on. Right. And, um, when he finally dies, John, when he finally, you know, dies, he says, uh, and on the day my lung collapses, it's not going to be much different. Uh, he sing, he actually sang that. He sings that right before the line about Dennis Brown. He sings about him, his drug abuse in a way that is preparing himself to be overtaken by it, uh, like it was written about the times when he kind of saw no way out. <sighs> so, you know, track twelve, almost, almost done. Got two more songs here. Uh, love, love, love. So, he says at the point. The point of this song is that we are fairly fairly well damaged by the legacy of the romantic poets. That we think of love as this um, thing that is accompanied by strings and it's a force for good, and something bad happens. If something bad happens, then that's not love. Uh, the therapeutic tradition that I come from, I used to work in therapy, uh, you know, always uh, says that it's not love if it feels bad. I don't know so much about that. I don't know that the Greeks weren't right. Uh, I think they were, that love can eat a path through everything, that it will destroy a lot of things on the way on the way to its own objective, which is just its expression of, of itself, you know. I mean, my stepfather loved his family, right? Now he mistreated us terribly quite often, but he still loved us. And, you know, well, that to me is something worth commenting on in the hopes of undoing a lot of what I perceive as terrible damage in the way people talk about this. Love is this benign, comfortable force. It's not that. It's It's wild. You know, again from John himself. Um yet another sad song paints a very vivid picture of sadness. Um you know, so last one, Pale Green Things where uh he sings upon hearing of his um oh no so so he's just saying here upon hearing about the death of his abusive stepfather, uh he was flooded with a number of long repressed memories and emotions uh, one such memory was of his stepfather bringing him to the racetrack, which he recounts in the song. Uh, Though the pain and anger of his childhood memories predominate the Sunset Tree, Pale Green Things concludes the album on a soft, contemplative, and possibly forgiving note. And uh, again, you know, in the liner notes, he talks about his stepfather. And um, so the uh, the titular plants found, quote, coming up through the cracks uh, of a lifeless asphalt lot, maybe referring to the moments Darnell spent with his stepfather, that weren't so bad. Uh, this song, as opposed to other songs about the terrible things his stepfather did, paints a bittersweet picture of their relationship. Uh, bearable, uh, maybe if, maybe even pleasant experiences did sometimes happen, and the memory of them continues to stand out in his mind. Uh, though feeble and scarce, these memories are alive. They are the pale green things, in reference to the name of the song, and also the line where he mentions coming up through the cracks to describe grass growing in concrete. So the song ends with him singing, "My um, sister called at three a.m. just last December. She told me how you died at last. At last, that morning at the racetrack was the one thing I remembered. Like despite everything he went through, that one good memory is what stood out in that moment. You know, the the death of his stepfather. He said is what drove him to write this album." You know, I did read something about how the way he says that in the song. He says, says, uh, you know, she told me how you died at last, at last. Like, it's like almost questioning, like, almost like a, like, like a finally type thing, maybe. But, um, whatever the case with that, man, it's, one of the darkest albums that I've covered comes to a close. And, um, I think you can probably see why I pushed it off for so long, but all that being said five out of five uh it's a wonderful album from start to finish that is best consumed while sitting in a quiet place with a strong drink again it's so so good but so heavy and you know it's the way i like a lot of my music but that's it for me this week so next week i will be diving into an even heavier album uh both musically and maybe even lyrically and content wise uh lingua ignata's caligula Uh, that's going to be another one that I've been pushed off. I pushed off for quite some time. Um, but when we get into it, it, it'll be, I think it'd be really fun, really interesting. But, um, anyway, pick this album up. Uh, like I said, there's only one vinyl pressing. They're all fairly cheap. Like it's on Spotify. Like look into it, look into the mountain goats. All their other stuff that I've heard is pretty great too. So highly recommend them. Not just this album, but like everything. right? Right. So again, for the vinyl countdown i am jeremy levine as always i hope to be in your ears next week everybody thank you take care